Well, welcome everybody. Glad you're here. Uh, if we haven't had the opportunity to meet, uh, my name is Randy and I'm one of the leaders here. I also get to be the campus pastor uh, of this location. Uh, if, if you're new around here, um, we are a multi-site church, which is why you just watched a video from our senior pastor. He oversees our entire church. Um, he does not pastor any of our campuses. Um, we all have local pastors at all of our campuses. So we have um, 11 campuses, eight in the U.S. We're the only one outside of California. Um, and, uh, and then we have three uh, overseas campuses. So thanks for being here. Uh, we say all the time uh, that this is the perfect place for imperfect people, and it truly, truly is. Somebody um, introduced me that way earlier. They're like, that we had a guest, and they're like, it, at first service, and he, was, and he was talking to one of our volunteers, and he's like, look, people love it here because it's just a bunch of mess. Like, even Randy, he's messed up. And I was like, dude, follow me around for five minutes, and you'll know. It's, uh, it, it's, not, it's not just a saying, it's true. I, I don't know if this has ever happened to you where you have had an image of somebody, you had a perception of somebody, but then you got like a small glimpse into a different part of their life or got to know them in a different way and it, it began to change and shift how you saw them. Like, like you've ever known somebody that was really put together, but then you saw the inside of their car and you were like, I've got questions. Like it kind of shifted like how you viewed them, right? Because it looks like, like a homeless encampment, you know, or like a crime scene or something like that. Like there's food containers and trash and clothes and a bag of donation stuff that's been in there for six and a half months and like unidentifiable substances that the kids got on the seats that just sort of dried there and now it's just part of the upholstery. Like, uh, or, or, or maybe you've had this experience where their car is clean but you have to ride with them somewhere and you've never, like they've never driven, like you've never been with them in the car and you find out what kind of driver there are and you're just like, yeah, I think I'll take an Uber back. Thanks very much. You're just like, I know we, I know we just ran to Home Depot together, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna like use my app to call someone else to drive me because you are scary. Uh, one of my closest friends, uh, Pastor Adam, he pastors uh, the Corona, Corona campus and, uh, and every time I ride with him, I'm like, dude, like you are a psycho. Like uh, you just do not pay attention at all. It scares, it scares the puke out of me. But I, I'm of the opinion that we're all a little bit whacked. Like everyone seems normal until you get to know them. And then when you get to know them, you're like, oh, yep, there it is. They are crazy just like everybody else. They aren't perfect. They do yell at their kids sometimes. Their house does look like a bomb went off in it sometimes. They do get afraid. They do drink a little too much sometimes. They don't have it all together. They do use words at other places that they don't use at church. We're all a little bit messed up, and sometimes we're all kind of a lot messed up because behind that perfectly crafted image that we present to the world is an actual real person, like a person with fears and problems and stresses and dirty dishes and crazy kids and timber problems and weight issues and parental pain and debt and bills and hurt and baggage and family stuff. And, and Christmas is my favorite time of year because life and people all seem to kind of soften a little bit around the edges. But, but it, during this season, like we're reminded that life was meant to be beautiful and full of meaning and purpose and love. But it's also during this time of year that it just has a way of sort of surfacing the chaos and the loneliness, maybe even the pain, maybe the imperfections in our family. Like it can be a reminder of the, like a broken relationship or somebody that we loved and then they're no longer around. It, it can remind us of how imperfect and crazy and messed up we are and the world is and it's just so chaotic. But that's one of the things that I actually love 
about the Christmas story, about the Jesus story. Because so often it's the star and the singing angels and the perfect little baby in the manger that get all of the attention, and rightfully so. But that's not all that there is to the story. In fact, it's the other stuff, it's some of the other stuff that we're gonna talk about today and in the next few weeks. It's the context around it that actually makes that stuff so remarkable. Because the times and the places and the people around those events were all real and they were the furthest thing from perfect. So normally, this time of year, especially in church, we would read the Christmas story in the scriptures from either the, the book of Matthew in chapter one or the book of Luke chapter two where they tell of Mary and Joseph and the events that surrounded the birth of Jesus. But this year, we're actually gonna travel a, a little farther back in time than that because if we were gonna tell the story of your life, it wouldn't be fair to, to, to start with today or even with your birthday because your story didn't begin the day that you were born. It began way before that with the lives and the choices and the stories of your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents and beyond that. And so we're gonna back up a little bit in the story of Jesus to 700 years before he was born because 2,700 years ago, a guy named Isaiah spoke about and wrote about Jesus, prophesied, he was a prophet, which means he spoke on behalf of God. And what he said is as beautiful and powerful and applicable to us today in our world as it was to the people and the world that Jesus was born into and to the people and the world that he spoke them into 700 years before Jesus was born. And so if you have a Bible or you have an app and you wanna follow along, you can do that. We're gonna be in Isaiah chapter nine or all of the scriptures are gonna be on the screen. You can just track along with us there. So Isaiah chapter nine, verse one says this. It says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Now take a minute, turn to somebody next to you and tell them no more gloom. Tell them right now, tell them no more gloom. Ready, go. Now I love this because there's a lot of gloom in our world right now. In fact, you don't have to travel very far from this space. If you just go right up to the corner to the gas station and put gas in your car, you will experience a little bit of gloom, right? But Christmas is a no more gloom season. It's a no more gloom time of year. We all have people in our lives who are kind of like rain clouds, you know? You know, the people that are like who whine and complain, who can cast a shadow on any sunny day. You know who those people are. And if you don't know who they are, you might be one. So, but all this month, you can actually look at them and just say, hey, time out. No more gloom. No more gloom. It's in the Bible. You can't argue with the Bible. Right? So Isaiah begins this conversation about Jesus talking about the gloom of people. And it's not people with just tiny little problems. It's not people who are without problems. It's not people who are just being whiners. Actually, he says there are people who are in distress, people who are in anguish, people who are overwhelmed, people who are stuck and paralyzed in their life. And he doesn't, I love that in the scriptures, they tell these stories that are real about real life. Like it doesn't gloss over the fact that these people are, in, in a broken situation, they're in a broken world, which I think for me gives me so much hope because especially this time of year, there can be all these like unrealistic expectations and pressures that sort of enter into to, to our minds. And sometimes they come from people we love. Sometimes they just come from inside of us where we just have this like rose colored picture of what Christmas is gonna be like and how our kids are gonna behave and what the house is gonna look like and how everybody, and it's just gonna be this beautiful Hallmark movie. And, and there's all these pressures. And then when it doesn't happen, it's just so full, we just get so full of disappointment. 
And what I want you to see this morning is that whether you're going into this Christmas season like really, really cheery or you're kind of stumbling to the end of the year and feeling kind of weary or you're somewhere in between, that Christmas, the real Christmas, not the commercialized thing that we celebrate, but, but that Christmas is for you. Now, Isaiah is going to tell us why in a minute, but I want you to look at the rest of what verse 1 says. So Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, he says this, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea. Okay, so all month long, we're talking about names, and Isaiah brings up these two names. He brings up Zebulun and Naphtali, and I know this is kind of obscure, and it's going to kind of feel like I'm getting off in the weeds here in a second, but there's some good stuff here, I promise, so just stick with me. So I don't know if you have any screw-ups in your family or any like bad apples in your family. Maybe that describes your experience or how you've been viewed in your family. Well, that was, that was this guy Zebulun and his brother Naphtali. They, they were regions of, uh, of land in the, the nation of Israel, but those regions of land were named after two brothers who were the sons of Jacob. They were two of the sons of Jacob. And, and by, by the way, real quick, because they were Zebulun, if, if you're pregnant, like if you're looking for baby names, these are like, you'll have the only Zebulun around, right? Like, I mean, come on now. Like everybody's all into going way out of the box these days. Maybe you could try one of those. So, but, but God, the history of these guys, like God through Jacob was divvying up land to all of his sons who would ultimately become uh, in the Old Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and, and these two guys were two of the sons. And they had, so they had a lot going for them, but they just never seemed to be able to live up to the, what they were given and what they were entrusted with. And so their story and the story of their land and the story of their descendants, I mean, when you read in the Old Testament, it's all over the map. It had some ups, there were some high points, but it was mostly downs. It was mostly just, just screw-ups. It was mostly problems. See, the, the truth is for you and I, for better or for worse, we make choices and then our choices make us, right? We decide, we choose, and then ultimately we deal with the consequences and the fallout of those choices that they steer the direction of our life. And so because of their choices, their names and their legacies and their families and their descendants were despised and dishonored and they became the poster children for what not to do, for how not to live, for what not to be. And yet... Here, Isaiah is telling us that this is the context, this, these are the people, this is the backdrop for the place and the path that re- redemption would ultimately come. And, and I absolutely love that because what he's saying is like, even if the gloom and distress and the problems and pain in your life are of your own making, even if it feels like no matter what you do, that all of the momentum of your life continues to drag you the wrong way, the direction you don't want to go. Even when it feels like that your story will be filled with nothing but the mistakes that you've made, that that'll always be what your story is about. He's going, there is a reason for hope. That, that God actually turns our places of shame and humiliation, because he says that in the past they've been humbled and humiliated but in the future, they're going to be honored, that those are going to be places of honor and celebration. And what's he talking about? Because it's those same regions of land that ultimately Jesus would come from and live and spend his life in and around the Sea of Galilee, in the, in the town in the city of Nazareth. All of those were located in these areas known as Zebulun and Naphtali. So Isaiah goes on, verse two. He says, the people... 
walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy and they rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, I'm just gonna pause there for a second. I know there's a lot of stuff in there. We're like, what are you talking about? We don't get any of the references. They're all, it's all insider stuff. Everybody that he's writing to knows exactly what he's writing about. But I just wanna point this out. So Midian, if you go back and read in the book, uh, of judges, um, there's this battle where God puts his finger on and picks this guy named Gideon to lead the army of Israel against and, and into one of the most miraculous and inexplicable and unexplainable victories in their whole history. And it was against this incredible, massive army of Midian. And God used Gideon and a few hundred soldiers and no weapons, just some torches and some pots to completely rout Midian. And so that's what he's talking about. And he's going, this is as unexplicable as that, as inexplicable as that. This is as crazy as that. And he says, just as in that moment, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. And he says, every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. It will be fuel for the fire. And I know we don't get all of the analogies and references and you don't have to to understand though that this is the language of freedom and peace and blessing that it was spoken into uh, uh, and towards a people who felt cursed and doomed to a life of brokenness and fighting and pain. You don't have to get all of the specific references to know that, that he was talking about a world that was full of fighting and stress and bloodshed and chaos to know that we still live in a world full of fighting and bloodshed and stress and chaos. And he's going into that environment is where Jesus is going to step. It's where God's going to step. Jesus actually echoed these words in a slightly different way. Matthew, his disciple, records them. Jesus said this. He says, Come to me, everyone who is weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest and peace. And so Isaiah continues on, and now he gets to his big crescendo in verse 6. And These might be words that you are familiar with because they are the words that were used in Handel's Messiah. And so that's a big, obviously, a little song that's endured for a little while. But he says this. He says, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And notice that he uses the phrase to us, and he actually says it twice just in case we would miss it. And the us he's talking about is all of us. See, like uh, uh, he's talking about a screwed up and dark and broken world and God isn't stepping in and wagging his finger in anger and disgust. No, he's stepping in and bringing light and life. See, Jesus didn't come because he needed, he, he didn't come because he needed to. He came because we needed him to. His coming wasn't about himself or his glory or his ego. It was about humanity and rescuing you and I. And so he says, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace and of the greatness of his government and the peace there will be no end. So the other thing to notice in the middle here of this incredible description of the impact that Jesus will have is that Isaiah definitely rattles off a list of names or nicknames for Jesus. See, as it turns out, 
God actually has a thing for names. They are a big deal to him because they tell a story. They're the foundation of our identity. They carry with us a part of our story wherever they go. They follow us around. So my given name is Randall, and growing up, I hated my given name. Like when I was a kid, it, it just it always made me feel like old. It just sounded old and nerdy, and I was just like, "That is, I hated it." And and I, you know, like I, I'm like, who looked at a little baby and thought, "Oh, it's little baby Randall." Like no, like as a as an adult, Randall makes sense, but you don't look at a little kid and be like, "There goes Randall." Like it just sounds like I don't know. It just so I hated it. So the the my least my least favorite day of the year was always the first day of school every year. And so I would like go and try to like head off and go, you know, get to class and go in and go straight to the teacher's desk and be like, hey, hey, hey. like I'm Randy. I know it says Randall. Can you please not, you know, just try, try to like, and every time they'd be like Randall Sherwood and I just would like sink in. I just wanted to die. Nobody else cared, but I cared. I just hated it. Because names are like this foundation of our identity. And I always felt like I was kind of a party waiting to happen. I didn't want to have a name that made me sound like an accountant. And that's who Randall is. Like Randall's the guy that, you know, does your taxes. Like I don't, that's not who I want to be. And sometimes our names actually carry more of us around than we want them to. They tell parts of our story that we don't want them to tell. Like, like have you ever been in a moment where you wished you could be someone else? Like, you could just give them a different name or, you, just, you know, just for a moment. Like, I had so many times where I've been in the car, and this is one of those moments where, you know, everything was going fine until someone had to walk up to the car and awkwardly say those three life-changing words, license and registration. Because in that moment, my name carried with it my driving history and my driving record, and it was not always a pretty picture. And so there were times where I was just like, I wish I could, for a, you know, I don't, I don't know who Randall is. I am Randy. I don't know who did that. But what's funny about names is as important as they are, we're all so bad with them. Like I've never heard anyone say, oh man, I am so good with names. But I've, I've had roughly 47,312 people tell me I'm bad with names. In fact, every single human being I've ever met in life at some point has been like, I'm terrible with names. And so maybe that we wouldn't forget who he is and why he came, God gives us a list of names or nicknames for Jesus. And you may have heard them before, so maybe you just kind of glossed right over them. But it's not a random list. They're not just names that he just sort of pulled out of a hat and there's certainly not all of the names that could be given to Jesus. They're not all the names that, that Jesus has in the scriptures. I think he gives us this particular list because every single one of those names addresses some specific, incredible need that we have as humanity. These names tell us who he will be and what he will do and how he's going to relate to us. And so he says that he will be the wonderful counselor I'm not sure what that means to you at this stage or place in your life, but with all of the craziness and complexity of life, with, all, with raising four kids and being a dad and two kids in college and being just 47 years old and trying to navigate the world, that's exactly the kind of reality that I feel like I need this time of year. A wonderful counselor. So he... he Tells that he's, he says that he's wonderful, and, and that, that word that gets translated in as, as wonderful in English, it's a Hebrew word, and, and when it's used in the scriptures, it's only ever used to describe God. 
And so wonderful doesn't really kind of capture it. Like, like the closest English word that we would have for it would be like awesome, but awesome gets way overused in our culture. And, and so he calls them the, the wonderful counselor. Like he's extraordinary and miraculous and shocking and astonishing and awesome. And it leaves us full of wonder. He is wonderful. And it describes not only who he is, but it also describes the kind of counsel that he gives. He's the wonderful counselor. But he's not, he's not just like a, kind of like, like a way better version of Dr. Phil, right? He, it doesn't not necessarily mean therapist. Yes, Jesus like comforts and advises and heals us, but more importantly, he also guides and directs and advocates on our behalf. He's he much more like an attorney that advocates, much more like an advisor who steps in and directs and leads and guides. In 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 25 in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote these words. He says, For the foolishness of God, if there was any foolishness in God, it's wiser than the greatest human wisdom. And, and the weakness of God, if there was any weakness in God, is stronger than the greatest of human strength. I, I love that. He's the wonderful counselor. I mean, isn't it interesting that for all of our learning, for all of our intelligence, that so many of us struggle with being trapped in the past, that so many of us struggle with creating the kind of life and the kind of, the kind of future that we want to create. That, that you can be an intellectual genius, but still not know how to create a better life and a better future for yourself, much less for those that you love and the world around you. I, I think it was Einstein that actually said that the difference between intelligence and wisdom is everything. So take a look at Isaiah chapter nine, verse two again. He says that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light and on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. We moved here uh, a couple years ago and I don't know, has anybody had this experience? Like, I feel like I'm still getting used to how late in the morning it stays dark here. Like it messes with my head. Like I'm used to it, like being in California this time of year, the sun starts setting at like four o'clock, 4.30, used to getting dark at that time. But when I wake, you know, you wake up at 6.30, it's pitch black. You wake up at 7.30, it's pit, you're just like, it's not time. It's not time to get up. Like I just, I feel like sometimes when I'm up at seven, I just want to be like, what are you doing? What are you waiting on? Let's go. Get over here. It's eight o'clock and you're just like, it's barely starting. There's starting to be some twilight. Like it just messes. Anybody else, you know what I'm talking about? But, but that morning twilight, it, it isn't what he's talking about, right? It wasn't like, oh, it's dark, but there's a little bit of light in the distance. No, no, no. He describes, what he's describing is total darkness. I don't know if you've experienced that. We were driving back from um, Sacramento a couple weeks ago, uh, last week from, from Thanksgiving, and you know, the drive between here and Northern California as you cut through Oregon and, and, and it's just terrible. It is terrible. And so I don't know where, we were out in the middle of nowhere. I don't know where we were coming home and we were just on that one two-lane two highway just cruising through the mountains and, you know, and it's just dark. There's nobody on the road. And so um, I was like, hey, check this out. And I turned the lights off and it was just pitch black. And my wife was like, what are you doing? Oh my God, just turn it on. We're going to drive off the road. I said, turn it on. It's like, oh, we're still, okay, there we go. And I was like, that was super cool. Let's do it again. Oh, what are you doing? Like, this is so crazy. <laughs> but it was pretty dark, right? And, and that, that's what he's talking about, like total darkness. And it wasn't just moments here and there. 
he describes it as deep darkness. And, and I don't know if you can relate to that or not, but I can relate to that. Like relational darkness, emotional darkness, spiritual darkness. And, and the thing about darkness is it, it's disorienting. It's confusing. It's paralyzing. It's overwhelming. A, a few years ago, I ran across a video that was actually put out by PBS, and, but it was really interesting because it, it was about um, how all of these studies have been done um, to try to figure out um, why it is when we can't see because it's dark or because we have a blindfold on or because of fog that we have a really hard time walking straight, going straight, going in a straight line. And so they've conducted all these experiments where they go into the open field and they blindfold people and they go, look, all you got to do is walk in a straight line across the field. And, and every single one of them, it never happens. In fact, they start off going straight a little bit, but then they almost always curve to the right. And then they just start going in circles and in circles and in circles and in circles and in circles until almost every time they end up very close to where they started. And it happened to people, and so it happened to people who were caught in a thick fog. It happened to people in actual experiments where they were blindfolded. It happened to people when it was just, they were in a place of darkness that they just couldn't make out. Like they just had no idea what was around them. See, it, it turns out what they discovered, and they don't know why, but without a fixed point, without some mountain, without the sun in the sky, without the moon, without something for us to just put our gaze to become a fixed point, we lose our way. We don't, we don't even know where we're going. We, we don't even sense that we're going in circles. We think we're going straight. And, and I just, as I watched it, I thought, man, what an incredible picture for what happens in life. And, and Isaiah's going, look, the, the, the wonderful counselor wants to step into the darkness and bring a light that can be this fixed point that you can actually direct and point your life at and begin to move towards as you live. When I was a kid, my stepdad introduced me to chess, and I'm not very good um, but for a, a, a minute when I was a kid, I was kind of obsessed with it, and I enjoy playing. I've taught my kids to play, uh, but, but I, I was really into it as a kid. And growing up, um, I don't know if you know anything about chess, but there's a guy named Gary Kasparov. He was the world champion for a long time, and he was dominant and incredible for like a decade from like the mid-80s to the mid-90s. Well, in the early 90s, the scientific community really began to focus on artificial intelligence. And so IBM developed a supercomputer called Deep Blue. And the goal of building this computer was to see if they could actually develop a computer that could beat a world champion at chess. And Kasparov and all of his contemporaries, none of them believed it could be done. And, for, and he was like, if I ever lose, he actually said, if I ever lose to a computer, that will be the last day I ever play chess. And so for a while, nobody thought it was possible and all through the early 90s and then Deep Blue came along and in 1996, for the first time in history, Deep Blue actually beat Gary Kasparov in a game of chess. And when they began to talk about how it did it afterwards, that's where it got really interesting because it beat him by evaluating 200 million board positions per second. I mean, can you imagine, like who even knew that there were 200 billion 200 million board positions per, you know, in, in, a, in a given moment in a game of chess. And, and here's the thing, that's just the game of chess. As complex as that game is or may seem, it's simplistic when compared to the game of life, right? And as mind-boggling and extraordinary that 
it is that, that there are 200 million board positions per second in chess, how much more is the complexity per second of making choices that don't just decide whether or not you win or lose a game, but actually whether you win or lose at life? And then you layer on free will and the human soul and relational baggage and sin and brokenness. It's no wonder that we're described in the book of Isaiah as people that are living in a land of deep darkness. But that is the beauty of the message of Christmas, that into the darkness a light has come, that into all of that complexity in life, we have a wonderful counselor who steps in and meets us where we are, to begin to lead us out, to lead us through. I think one of the things that's difficult for us to wrap our minds around is that God existed before anything, and he will exist long after everything. In the scriptures, it actually describes him as the beginning and the end, and everything that will ever be and will ever exist, and every time that will ever be and ever exist will, exi- will happen in between his beginning and he is the end. And this God who exists outside of time and space decided to step into a specific time 2,000 years ago and into a specific place in a town called Bethlehem. And the one who is uncontainable allowed himself to take on flesh and blood and allowed himself to be contained and to be constrained. And because he became one of us, he understands what it is to be like you and me. And that is how he can be the wonderful counselor. See, Jesus doesn't just have good perspective. He has all the perspective. I have um, I've gone to counselors on and off for, uh, over the years, and I actually saw one a few times earlier this year, and it was one of the best things that happened to me this year because he really helped me navigate some very specific and challenging things that I was stuck in. And that's what good counselors do, right? They, they challenge our thinking. A good counselor in a session with a good counselor, it's like they hold up a mirror and allow you to see your life and yourself in a way that you could not see yourself otherwise. A good counselor will uncover lies that you've believed and that you're living by, and they will help you see truth and wisdom. A good counselor will shift your perspective and help you relate to other people in a healthier way and process things that are painful and hard in a, in a better way. But as good as they are, they're limited in their human perspective. They're limited to their own experiences. They're limited by their own training and their own education. But that is the beauty of the wonderful counselor is that he isn't limited by any of those things. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Verse 30, the Apostle Paul said it this way. He says that God has united you with Christ and for our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. That Christ made us right with God, that he made us pure and holy and he freed us from sin. I love that, that God, that that in Jesus, that God gave the full expression of his love and his grace and his beauty and his life and his light, that he made Jesus wisdom itself. And when when we step into relationship with him through faith, that God unites us together with wisdom itself. See, Jesus isn't looking to be on your board of directors. He's not looking to be your life coach or your accountability partner. Jesus wants to be the source of wisdom and truth and understanding in your life.
I mean, imagine for a second. And there, there are computers that are infinitely more powerful now than Deep Blue ever was. But imagine for a second being able to have access to Deep Blue, being able to get inside the mind of that you know, computer. Let's just keep it old school and simple, right? Imagine having access to a computer that could evaluate 200 million board positions in your life before you ever made a choice, where you could instantly know, you could instantly see how a choice was going to go and how it was going to play out and the path that it would lead you down, where you could go, if I go this way, if I decide that, oh, that's going to lead me there and then that's going to happen. Or if I choose over here, these are the dominoes that would be set in motion. These are the consequences that would ripple out from this decision. How many choices would we take back if we could just see the momentum of that choice and the end result and the implication of that choice ahead of time? And yet we don't have access to artificial intelligence. We have access to infinite intelligence and wisdom. We have access not to deep blue, but to a deep God, to the wonderful counselor. I think sometimes our problem is that we don't know what we don't know. But one of my favorite truths, one of my favorite declarations about God and his intentions towards us is in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. The Apostle Paul wrote, However it is written, no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. He's like, look, you can't even imagine it. And he's going, look, you can't see it and you haven't heard it and you don't know where this is going and you can't imagine it. And you're like, yeah, I kind of know. That's the problem. I don't know where all this is headed. And he's going, but you have a wonderful counselor and you have no idea that it hasn't even entered into your imagination, the things that God wants to do for you, the things that God has for you. If you will trust him. See, into the deep darkness, a light has dawned. Light that doesn't come on for a minute and then flicker out because it's engulfed by the great and massive cavern of our soul, but light that fills up our light and drives out the darkness. Light that provides a lamp for our feet and a light to our path, showing us the path that leads to the beautiful, incredible life that God created us for a life that's full of health and wholeness, a life that's full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. That's all happened to be what the scriptures call the fruits of the spirit, of the fruit of a life connected to the wonderful counselor. The question is, though, we have this counselor. Can we hear him? Are we listening? As Hansi and I were talking about this this week. Um, I was reminded, you know, she, a number of years ago, was going to a counselor when we lived in Northern California, and his name was Gerald, and he was a great counselor. Um, but um, that's when I learned, like, I feel bad for every counselor that Hansi goes to because um, she really is paying money to go argue with someone. And um, so she'd get in the car, I'd pick her up, and be like, how'd it go? She'd say, oh, it was really good. I was like, well, what did he say? And she would tell me, and I'd be like, yeah, I mean, that actually sounds really good. She's like, no, that's dumb. I told him it was dumb. I was like, no, he's wrong. And I was like, what? You told, you told the guy he was dumb? I was like, no, I didn't tell him he was dumb. I told him what he said was dumb, and it's not true. And I was like, wait, do you just like, do I just drop you off here for an hour and you just argue with that guy? <laughs> like, what's going on? Like, better you call him dumb, I guess, than me. Like, I don't want to argue about this either. Um, and then we started talking about, like, I, I've had that same moment with a counselor where, where I, I bring all my problems, but I also bring along all my solutions. 
Like, you know, like, I, I have this problem, but also I already have it figured out. Counselor, here's the answer. And, and one time I was sitting across from my counselor and he's like, look, I don't know what you want me to do because there's not really much I can do to help you because you already think you know all the answers. And, and in that moment, it, it was like, I, it just kind of gently destroyed me because I knew he was right. Like I was going to a counselor and bringing all my own solutions with me. As if all I needed to do was have him tell me I was right about the thing I was already trying to do, but it wasn't working. And we do that because we're embarrassed of our weakness or our darkness or that thing in us that we can't seem to fix or figure out for ourselves. And sometimes even when we're willing to be honest about our problems, we tend to immediately focus on what we think are the solutions. And as ridiculous as that is to do with a human counselor, we do the same thing with God all the time, where we recognize that we're broken, but in the same breath, we will acknowledge that, you know, in that same breath that we acknowledge our sickness, we will also tell Jesus the answer of how we want him to fix it. Like, I know I struggle with this, but I got it. I, I, you know, you know, you know that I know, and you, I know that you know that I know that I know what I'm doing. And we completely ignore the fact that Jesus is this incredible, wonderful counselor, that he not only understands our humanity, but he also has the light and the life and the eternal wisdom to guide us through the darkness, no matter how deep, no matter how pervasive, no matter how overwhelming. And that's really the point of this morning, that, that Jesus is inviting you to come and sit down at the table, that the, the wonderful counselor is inviting you to step into a conversation with him, and, and that as you approach him, that we would not go with our bag full of answers, but we would go to Jesus and simply humbly ask for his help. And, and the good news, that the message of Christmas is that light has come into the world and that every one of us may be messed up, but God has a thing for names and he declares that his identity is that he's a wonderful counselor. And that is exactly who we need him to be. That he's come to rescue and to restore us. That he came for all people, for all times. That he came for the screw-ups and the messes, for the Zebulans and the Naphtali's. It's for the broken and the hurting, for those in darkness, for the lonely and confused, for the weak and afraid, for the abandoned and orphaned, for the rebellious and the restless. That in our darkest moment, in our greatest pain, in our deepest places of brokenness and sin, when we're lost and alone and afraid, he comes and steps into that moment as the wonderful counselor. Even when we're just overwhelmed because we don't know which way to go in life. And so, maybe you're here this morning and maybe you're, like what we talked about at the beginning, maybe you're in distress. Maybe there's some stuff that's pressing in on your life. You can actually engage with the wonderful counselor and, and have this Christmas be a no, like truly be a no more gloom time. That, that feeling of emptiness or being lost, that feeling of just maybe you can relate to just that 
going in circles and you keep ending back at the same spot, that you can know that the light has come. Or, or if you have a situation where you're just going, I just, I don't know what to do. I need some help, some wisdom figuring this out. Maybe that's what you need to come to Jesus and ask for his help, ask God for during this season. Or, or if there's some broken or fragmented relationships that Christmas sort of brings into the center of focus. We can take all of those situations, all of those different parts of our life and bring it all to the wonderful counselor. And if you are not somebody who's ever taken that step to open your life to Jesus and to allow him to come in, and you've been just kind of coming and sort of wrestling, trying to wrestle it all to the ground, and there's all those things that you're still unsure of, but maybe today is your day. Maybe today is the day that you open your life to God, that in the simplicity of Christmas, of the Christmas story, is that God in Jesus has come for you and me. And because he has come for you, that you can come home where you belong this Christmas to the God, your heavenly Father who loves you, to the wonderful counselor. Let's pray together.